Hello there. Last time on Love Letters Bound in Gold Handcuffs, Roland, back home in London, wrote to Lee about the International Surrealist Objects and Poems exhibition that their work was in, but was also becoming increasingly agitated about Lee's lack of communication. This is a neatly folded, creamy coloured airmail paper with her typed letters of four pages. It's the first time that Lee's written to Roland in nearly a month, and she's writing to him on Christmas Day, the 25th of December, 1937. My darling, I wonder why I'm so sad. Fundamentally, I am, although I spend all my time in a wild burst of gaiety and keep trying to find something a bit more hectic than suffering from fits of depression or just tiredness or reaction until I'm suicidal and then cured of that by resting and sulking. And all the good looks and good humour that I brought back with me from knowing you are dissipated by being discontented and by being unsatisfied. I want to make love. I suppose that being in love makes lovemaking more interesting, even with someone else. One's mind is on it. I even have pangs of jealousy about you. Funnily enough, not because you're making love with other people, but because I can't also, and I want to. Tonight I'm going to bed early and tomorrow there's a dinner party and nightclub. On Christmas Eve the same, then either Saturday or Monday, I'm going to Luxor to stay at Abud's place again. To come back here on New Year's Day and go the following on a desert trip to Sinai, to the convent of St Catherine's. I saw the Sinai Mountains Sunday dawn, the most incredible burst of surrealist painting imagined. Max Ernst in Turner's colour. And surely he used the edge of the pane of glass to scrape it on the canvas. The textures were harsh and bloody colours, all on the background of sentimental petunia fading up to pale green. And on the other side of the landscape was the full moon framed by the curve of a towering mountain on one side and open azure space on the other. And trembling in space underneath were two molten rose-coloured seahorse-shaped clouds and two stars fluttering in the aquamarine and semi-precious horizon. I was filled with awe and relief, and irreality, and confidence for all the nothingness that I would have to face forever. Of giddiness and cleanliness, and the circumstances practically were such that made the moment of release welcome like the ability to pray. We were four of us, Aziz, Kate Davis Pulitzer and Henry, the boy I have such a hopeless lech for, and myself, on a camping trip to fish from Sokhna. So Sokhna, Sokhna means hot, literally, and it's short for Ain Sokhna, uh, which is the hot springs. And they're hot springs that are to the kind of southeast of Cairo, not far at all from Suez. It's kind of where... Today's Kyrenes, it's kind of a weekend spot. I mean, it's, it's only about an hour's drive from Cairo today, and it's not far at all from the city and not far from Suez. In fact, you can see from the coast in Sokhna the ships that are passing through the canal from land. I'd gotten plastered on rum and probably cooked the dinner badly, but Henry got an attack of acute indigestion rather worse than the one you had in Brussels. In the meantime, everyone had gone to sleep, and in my drunken, sulking and insomniac sort of way, I stayed up by the campfire and roasted popcorn and chestnuts and thought about myself in relation to you, Aziz and Henry, and all the other people of my past, their past, and hell with the future. 
I'd already been swimming naked in the freezing cold once and decided to wash the worst of the camp dishes since I couldn't sleep anyway, and that would make breakfast and morning easier, so I waded in and started to scrape with sand and salt water, swaying slightly in rhythm to my mood and alcohol, when, splash, I fell in. The slight waves had washed away the sand from beneath my feet, and I was too vague to right my balance and practically drowned. That happened twice before the job was finished, and I'd just gotten dry in a bitter winter wind, covered the heads of my sleeping friends with extra sweaters, and was crawling into bed. Damn badly made one at that. When Henry wakes up with pain, fever and belches. All night long I heated water bottles of our previous supply for his stomach in the only firewood bought hundreds of miles from Cairo. The first thing I thought of was appendix. He hadn't one. Ruptured ulcer, no stomach history like yours. So what, hot tea, hot covers? In a wailing gale, he didn't get any worse and there was no way back at night. The road was almost impassable by day. So, my marvellous dawn, I packed the camp and drove him jaggedly tired to Suez to the French hospital, leaving Kate Davis and Aziz. It was a hellish drive and my muscles still ache. The French hospital said it was acute indigestion, pleurisy, gave him medicine and said he was to stay in bed for several hours before going on to Cairo. So he did. And we'd been looking for a bed for months. And finally to find it filled with fevers, opiates and worry, we did anyway and made love to the accompaniment of two green hot water bottles and summonses to the telephone for all the long-distance calls I'd put into Cairo to his wife and doctor. It was like a French comedy, or tragic youth, or soldiers before going to the war. An unsatisfactory, but a victory. I thought of you and the luck we had had, to be independent, unattached and certain of each other, from the first night. How awful if I had had to lead another life the next morning, and for all those lovely weeks, if you hadn't loved me, if you'd not been free. I love you, darling Roland, and I think that I've worked out a satisfactory start for a plan. Half-joking, but with a certain amount of seriousness, I talked with Aziz and said that I wanted a certain fixed holiday every year as a bachelor. He insists that I go see my parents this coming year, but otherwise didn't seem staged or anti. And another conversation was about my marrying someone else. He was very funny about that, and said that he'd insist on being my lover in the case. Further than that, I've never gotten even an approach or thought of my own on the problem. All I know is that I can't possibly leave him or hurt him or open him to any sort of humiliation. If there were another time... It would be different, but at the moment when all the demands of me is my companionship, when he is upset physically, it would be too serious an injury to walk out now. I can only look forward to my holiday with you for next year, but that is definite and sure, and after that we can plan. I'm finishing this letter, that is this page, on Christmas morning. It's rather gloomy and I have a terrible hangover, but must pull myself together for the races. I got myself a beautiful new grey Packard for Christmas and drive ever so carefully, mostly because it's not allowed to go fast. A Merry Christmas to you, sweetheart, and by the time you receive this, I will be wishing you a Happy New Year from even further away in Luxor. This is Lee's last creamy airmail letter.
that she wrote to Roland in 1937 and it's written on the 28th of December. Darling, don't pay any attention to what might look like neglect and if it worries or upsets you, just think how I feel not getting a chance to scribble what I'd like to when I want to. All the different post-arrivals thrill me with this and that, seeds, gallery catalogues, books, photographs and new from new. It's selfish and greedy of me to read and gloat over your letters and seem to do nothing about it from my end. I'm enclosing bits and pieces of letters already started to you. In the meantime, I've lost track of all the things that have happened, the ones I haven't told you about. It's all been such a tremendous rate. I haven't had a minute to organise my thoughts, much less to know when or what I've been doing in the past few weeks. It's included tourists, big business deals, a great many parties, silly excursions, a Fantasia Arab style in the desert one night, disgracing myself in drunkenness with my darling Charlie MacArthur, crying and trying to relieve myself over Gerald's death. I loved him so very much, it never once in my life occurred to me that anyone I loved and knew and wanted to live might die. It's being a spoilt child or a very young one, but I can't believe things like that can happen to me. That a friend should be taken away, and forever. And no matter how I scream, nothing can be done about it. Gerald was God, and it's like losing religion or finding out about it. Did you see him again after I left Paris? Did he go to England? And what did he die of? I don't know anything about it except for a wire I got in the middle of the night asking for Jean-Pierre's address and name and I haven't had the time or courage to write to Lee Erickson to get further details. Gerald Kelly is a bit of a mystery to us at the moment. We don't really know how Lee knew him. Obviously from her letters she seems to be very, very close to him and quite affectionate towards him. We think that he probably worked as a photographer or in some capacity for Condé Nast, probably Harper's Bazaar, because of the connection in Roland's letter where he talks about um, Peter Pullum, who also knew that Gerald had died. I went to Upper Egypt last weekend. As a matter of fact, it was in sight of Luxor, a few miles beyond a very big and swank estate such as I didn't know existed in Egypt. And I guess it's unique anyway just like Long Island or the cinema, full of Arab riding horses, swimming pools, ping-pong, billiards, shades of the gazebo, a bar in which I performed as a barmaid most of the time. Yeah, so Luxor, Upper Egypt would have been right on the tourist trail. There would have been large numbers of tourists there from the beginning of the 20th century, really. You know, Thomas Cook is taking large numbers of tourists there from the third quarter of the 19th century. There are large, large hotels. People would have been on private Nile cruises. They would have been on on big steamers. They would have also gone there on train as she did. So it would have been very well established as a kind of tourist destination, particularly around the time where she goes. So, you know, kind of Christmas. Uh, New Year was very much the high season and has been in Luxor Aswan for a very long time. I got inspired and rode a horse for the first time in a great many years, more than I care to think ago. In fact, exactly half of my life ago. In that riding was the last thing I expected to do on this earth ever again, I was caught unawares and said, why not? 
before thinking, as I usually do, and went in the jersey skirt pants you dislike so much and my Saint-Tropez sandals, also to keep from losing them I bound up my breasts in the red and white spotted Mougin's bathing costume underneath my blouse. It was grand and I rose at full tilt after the first 15 minutes and wasn't particularly lame except for about two yards of skin that was sandpapered off my bottom and the insides of my knees, assorted bruises mostly on my poor tortured innocent bystander feet. Incidentally, the feet are working so well after Dr Patel treatment that I'm becoming an energetic woman and no one believes it. I walked round from hours on end and even went to the pyramids, the sphinx, the museum and the mosques, as well as to the musky countless times. In fact, I'm really finding amusing things to do in Egypt, and if it weren't for a number of other things I'd rather do, I really like it and find life ideal. I make all my friends read the surrealist books, and they still don't believe it's true, as if it were some huge joke that was being played on everyone, including ourselves. Night before last in the Continental Cabaret, an Englishwoman, who I adore otherwise, said, Did you see the goddamnest pictures of so-called art exhibition in London appearing in the Tatler? And I said, Yes, I have a piece of sculpture in the show. You should have seen her face. If I were even her eighth cousin, she'd have had me up before a board of alienists. The seeds have already been planted, bit here and there, between roses and sweet peas. I must be in bad humour because I fire everyone in the house and scream at servants, which I never did before. I'm irritable and nervous and cross and can't seem to solve any of my household problems, which isn't particularly new, except that this is the first time that it gets on my nerves. When service is bad or they forget things. I'm in such a state of outrage because the gardener cut down the casuarina trees just because their shade spoiled about three metres of grass. Arabs hate trees anyway, he might have asked instead of just chopping, so he was kicked out. I've never ridden in the motorboat, as it broke down the day before I arrived in Alexandria. Then we came here and had it put in a dry dock to do it all up before changing the fresh water after the salt. I'm being sued for running down a man on the 5th of last June, on which day I was safely on the Esperia, thank God, on my way to meeting you. I have a terrible sinus and awful headache since going to Luxor as the train is drafty. Oh my God, you're influencing my spelling even. My goodness, she must have been in a bad mood. It's really out of character for her to have sacked someone like that. She was usually quite aware of people's livelihoods and family responsibilities, having not come from a background of great privilege herself. Then she's joking and making a dig at Roland's spelling, which was quite a difficult thing for him. We found out after he died that actually he was severely dyslexic. It's all especially calculated to have the wind come in the slatted doors just on head level and then pipe in the extra smoke from the locomotive into the compartments by secret ventilation system. Also, at Luxor or at Aswan, they run the cars into breeding places carefully chosen for high-class mosquitoes, fill the compartment with bloodthirsty beasts, slam the doors quickly and then insert the passengers carefully so that there can be no loss of efficiency. The poor tourist is then kept busy all night slapping them on the ceiling with a wet towel and soaping his wrists and swallowing quinine so that he doesn't notice that he can't have slept anyway due to the peculiar manner in which the roadbed is constructed and the steeple chasing that the driver practices all night long.
Anyway, I feel awful, and besides which, I have a lech for a boy who can't be had, because there's neither opportunity nor place in the construction of our respective lives, as I lived here in Cairo. I've had so many stomach aches for you that I had hoped I could transfer my troubles to a desire for someone else, if only temporarily. But even that's out. So I practice hydraulics from time to time and try to remember. But you're further and further away. And there are so many things that I forget. I love silly snapshots. It's like seeing you at least, since I can't feel you. I borrowed an English edition of Justine of de Sade and read it last night. It strikes me as very abbreviated and castrated copy. I never read it entirely before, but a few pages here and there when Man Ray was reading it, and there are some parts which impressed me particularly, such as Therese's arrival in the castle with Roland, descriptions of this state of condition, and looks of the woman at the wheel, etc. But it's all reduced in this one, or am I wrong? Anyway, I'll go counterfeiting with you any time. Tell me about the Steedle edition. Isn't there a great deal of rather intimate goings-on in it? I can't remember well enough to compare it with this. Is there also the story of another girl by de Sade? I suppose you're back from Brussels now, and I hope that you're anxiously awaiting this letter, as I am your next one. I imagine that Brussels in winter is full of sleet and steamy restaurants and nice food smells, and stuffy people who are tired and go to concerts rather too dressed up. I remember a very nice bed there, although it was often occupied by strangers. Darling, I hope that you don't catch any more attacks like you did there. I'm feeling rather desperate. I may turn up on your doorstep or kill myself. Or get very ill, in an escape motif or defence, but something is going to happen, and damn soon. I love you, my darling Roland. I love you. Your Lee. Hampstead, 29th of December, 37. My darling, I'm happy again beyond words at finding two letters from you on my table this afternoon when I got back from Cornwall. One which you wrote on Xmas night has come with such speed that it is almost made up for the endless weeks that I have waited, and again, what marvellous letters! I have read them through twice already, chuckling over your adventures, and greatly moved by your descriptions, particularly of the Sinai fishing trip. Your friend H will be as hopelessly in love with you as everybody else if you go on owning his stomach that way. Xmas at Lamb Creek was great fun, though I couldn't get you out of the landscape for a moment. And in consequence there was plenty of gingerbread, but not guilt. The feasting was on a scale such I have never before lived through. Joy and Beekus had seen to it that one was not without food or drink for more than the time to play a game of billiards and get back to it. Of the Beekus and Joy that Roland mentions in this letter, Beekus was Roland's younger brother, with whom he had a very strong alliance against the two older brothers, because Alec was kind of very superior and authoritative by virtue of his age. Lionel was so highly intelligent he was out of reach of most people. So Beekus and Roland stuck together, and that persisted right up until the end of their lives, and it, it was rather touching to see how important they were to each other. Joy was Beekus's wife, 
of that time. And she and Beekers loved having a riotous time with lots of friends and lots of booze and a great deal of fun. So it's no surprise Roland described his visit in such glowing terms. Beekus's career started when, as a young man, he ran away to sea, sailing round the world on a four-masted sailing ship and having all kinds of incredible adventures. And he continued doing really amazing seafaring work until the end of the war when he settled in Cornwall, going back to the place that he loved most, and he bought a farm near Lamb Creek and lived there for the rest of his days. The other guests were amusing and drank even more than I did. As there was a... Oops, that word's missing in Roland's letter. It's not because of editing, it's just not there. Of girls, and the little girl Juanita, who is so devoted to me, the one I told you about who came back to London recently, had nothing to do and nowhere to go. I took her down with me. She had immediately to grapple with the attentions of a drunken Don Juan, one of the guests, and flew to me for protection. I tell her endlessly that my protection is of little use in the long run, that all my heart is in Egypt. But even that does not shake her, and I find myself, not altogether unwilling, playing the part of an older brother with a little more thrown in. On the way back in the train, she too fell ill with a terrible griping stomach, and I have had to bring her here and put her to bed. She has even been fainting on the stairs, and it looks as though I should have to take my guardianship seriously for the moment. Talking of stomachs, darling, would you remember to send back my powder prescription? The new Minotaur has just come, and I am sending on a copy to you. It looks to me very exciting, full of interesting stuff, but I haven't had the time to read it yet. Also, Man Ray's book has come. Drawings by him and poems by Paul. It all looks very good indeed. Have you got a copy, or shall I send you one of that too? It's not surprising that Roland decided to send Lee a copy of Minotaur. It was a beautifully produced magazine, fabulously printed on very well-chosen paper and published by Albert Skira. It included all kinds of things like psychoanalytical studies and pieces about Freud's latest thinking, but also it was so in advance of its time. It had fabulous photography. It had illustrations of the most important recent paintings. It had articles and poems by Breton, Éluard, Duchamp and others. And it was just the most wonderful compendium of the very best of surrealism at that time. It only did about two issues every year. And so it had an enormously important profile. But of course, it ran at a, at a loss and it required people like Edward James to keep putting money into it. But it remains today as the most fabulously showcased view of surrealism at that time. There was at that time a nascent surrealist movement in Egypt and Lee had made contact with them and she very carefully, cautiously shared things like Minotaur with these people. Lee had to be very careful about the sort of things that Roland was sending her. Even as an expatriate, she was constantly under the surveillance of the secret police who were watching out for anything that they might have considered to be seditious. 
and they would have certainly considered the views of surrealists and some of the publications that there were to be in that category. And so Lee was often warning Roland to, when he sent things, put them in sort of plain wrappers so they couldn't be, un couldn't be understood what the contents was. Of course, the secret police would have loved to have got onto this because revolution is one of the cornerstones of surrealism. You ask about Saad. As far as I can remember, the best bit in the book is the bit in the monastery. The old monks surpass each other in refinement in their attentions to the girls they have caught. But I expect you are right about your copy being cut. There was a long, juicy piece in the castle which was very good. The Marquis de Sade, whose book Roland recommends, was a sort of totemic figure in a way for the Surrealists because he claimed to be a proponent of absolute freedom, unrestrained by morality or religion or law, which chimed very strongly with the Surrealists' own views. What was difficult for them, no doubt, was the fact that de Sade was very well known as having a dreadful reputation as being a child abuser and abuser of, of adults as well. And it must have been a little difficult to fit all that together. But in some ways, the Surrealists liked celebrating what they called the sacred monster, and perhaps Dessard fitted that category. The other book you are thinking of is Juliette ou les Advantages des Vices, or some such name. Juliette is Justine's sister and takes exactly the opposite path. Instead of being virtuous and being wrecked in consequence, she is systematically vicious and gets every possible honour and success. The book is very difficult to find, but perhaps some second-hand bookshops in Cairo might have it. Otherwise, there is not a bad book in English which came out a few years ago called, I think, The Political Ideas of the Marquis de Sade by Geoffrey Gore. It gives a good many extracts and not a bad account of his life, Probably you could get it in Cairo, or if not, I will send it. I can't tell you much about Gerald, I'm afraid. Only what man told me in Brussels. Apparently he's got very run down with overwork and caught a chill. Man said they were drinking cocktails together one evening, both feeling like hell. Man, with his usual prudence, refused to have another, and Gerald went on drinking. Next morning he was taken to the American hospital, where it was found he had pneumonia. I believe, at any rate, they put him in the new oxygen chamber, and as happens, so says man to people who go in there, he didn't come out alive. It was all over very quickly. I can well understand the shock it has been to you, and I'm terribly sorry. There is going to be a formidable surrealist exhibition in Paris arranged by Breton and Eluard, which says Raton promises to make a lot of scandal. Everybody will be showing, and they seem to be worked off their head getting it all ready for January 11th. I hope to make them an excuse for a visit to Paris. Meanwhile, I am at work again on some new ideas, which I will describe to you another time. I am sending with the Minotaur Miro's design for a postage stamp and a little present from Maison called The Well of Truth. Darling, your life sounds very exciting and very hectic. 
I'm frightened all the same of your new high horsepower Xmas present and the snake. I wish to God you would turn up on my doorstep, that I should hear you call me from the street and look out to find you there, in a golden taxi drawn by polar bears. Your idea of a bachelor holiday is certainly better than nothing, and I live buoyed up with that distant and ephemeral hope. Your letters have changed the whole horizon, which was getting steadily blacker and blacker with your lack of news. You must forgive my suspicion and unnecessary continuous tactics, but I had to find out about you somehow. I want you, my love. Come soon. Come and stay. When you can. I love you. Roland. And don't you keep me waiting six weeks for your next letter. This will arrive too late for the new year, but I send you my best wishes and all my love. Next episode, it's a new year and it brings around a period of artistic creativity for Roland. And Lee is crowned Sister of All Serpents. This episode is presented by me, Amy Bouhessen, the co-director of the Lee Miller Archives, and I also read Lee's letters. Roland Penrose's letters are read by Adam Grayson. Our guests in this episode are Dr. Hussein Omar, lecturer in modern global history at the University College Dublin, and Anthony Penrose, son of Lee Miller and Roland Penrose, and also co-director here at the Lee Miller Archives. The music is composed by David Cullen and the series is produced by Tolly Robinson. Episode is copyright the Lee Miller Archives 2021, all rights reserved.